Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join me in an empty yet bright capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Eitan Ilfield, director of Watkins Media. Eitan, hello. Hi, Matthew. It's a pleasure uh, to be here virtually. Well, thank you. Well, thank you very much for coming on the program. Uh, now, normally we'd crack straight on to talking about leadership, uh, but before we get there, of course, we need to address the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak. Um, how has this affected your company's operations? Right. Uh, in a multitude of ways, really. So, uh, so Watkins Media, uh, we're primarily a publishing company, uh, and uh, uh, we also own a bookstore. Uh, so... Basically, you know, the, the bookstore had to close. It closed uh, before uh, uh, before things got really bad. Uh, so it was, I think it was, it was the week of it was around like March 18th or something like that that we, we closed the bookshop because I was concerned for the, the safety of the staff primarily. And uh, now almost everybody that was working at the bookshop is, is furloughed. Um, we do have a few people that uh, that, that are working uh, remotely for the bookshop. Uh, on, on some of our uh, digital products, so that that's the situation there. And, and then with regards to the publishing company, um, which uh, kind of staff there of about uh, about 30 people, um, about half of them are furloughed at the moment, and we're uh, we're going to be taking shifts uh, between uh, between the staff so that uh, we'll have a mode of uh, I guess you could call partial hibernation because uh, you know this is a time when even though obviously books are great uh, uh, to have when you're, you're stuck at home, but uh, obviously uh, it's hard to buy books right now when, when bookshops are closed. And uh, and Amazon is actually uh, deprioritized books, uh, so there's no longer a pre-order button on Amazon for uh, for upcoming books. And um, and the delivery at the moment for uh, for books, obviously, you know, it isn't next day delivery. Stock is a bit more limited, so. It's a lot harder, and, and, and the wholesalers and distributors that, that we work with, uh, some so our distributor is still working, but not at full capacity. Uh, that's GPS, which is owned by Random House, and then uh, the wholesalers that we work with, uh, uh, most of them, uh, Bertrams, uh, Gardners, they've all paused. So uh, that's really tough because uh, you know it's, it's hard to sell. So at the moment, uh, I guess like our sales are down to about a third of what they usually would be uh, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, so we're being in terms of physical. So, you know, the staff that's working, they're working from home and, and we're, we're trying to adapt. And uh, basically, you know, the last few weeks, it's just gone from, from more challenging to even more challenging. And, and we've, you know, we've adapted. Um, the good news is that uh, I've got a, an amazing team uh, of people that work with me and, you know, they've been very, very supportive. Uh, uh, the furlough scheme, I think, by the way, has been has been really has been a life uh, a lifesaver for uh, for both uh, my employees. I think I think obviously, well, okay, we'll get into into leadership a bit later, but uh, obviously, taking care of the employees that is that is so important. So I, I feel really good that uh, that we're able to do that during these challenging times. Uh, but we've also adapted. So as a publisher, you know, we also have an opportunity to help uh, a lot of people and uh, in Watkins itself the, the bookshop and the and the imprint uh, of Watkins uh, which goes back to uh, 1893 founded by John Watkins in our bookshop uh, Watkins bookstore which is 
near Leicester Square, and sadly is shut at the moment. Uh, uh, it's been in the same physical location since 1901, and it's been it's been providing uh, uh, guidance on well-being, anything to do with, with mind, body, spirit. And and so at the moment, at least our e-books and our audio books are actually doing quite well. We are finding there's there's a big uptick there, and we're we're trying to uh, invest uh, more in our in our digital products. So uh, it's a bit serendipitous that. Uh, uh, a few months ago, we launched uh, an e-course platform where you can take uh, e-courses on demand uh, from the, the Watkins Wisdom Academy. Uh, so anything there from like uh, mm. rituals to uh, a meditation course that's just uh, coming up. Uh, and uh, and so that that is really great. And it's just quite odd because um, I'd actually, I, I, I kind of threw the gauntlet down uh, before this whole corona pandemic uh, at the very beginning of the year, and I said, uh, I said I wanted to reach a certain target for digital sales that included audiobooks, ebooks, and online courses, and it was quite quite ambitious. <laughs> and now it's starting to look a lot more realistic. I have to say, uh, uh, well, it was always because I could always shoot for targets, but uh, but now I, I definitely think that you know we should be able to, to surpass it. Uh, and uh, you know, the, and and one of the things we're doing right now, obviously, because you know, this is a time of economic hardship for everyone, right? Uh, you know, also our customers, right? So they're they're trying to save they're trying to save money. It's harder for them to spend even when we're offering products. So we're also trying to offer as much value and also offer some free products. I mean that's that's part of the beauty of digital is that we can offer some free things. So we actually uh just uh uh made one of our courses on the academy completely free, uh which is a course on a course on rituals. Uh and we are about to have uh in a few days we're gonna have a a meditation uh uh, an introductory meditation webinar that's completely free by William Bloom, who uh, who's an amazing, uh, amazing spiritual teacher. So, you know, so we're, we're we're trying to find a way to to adapt. I mean, it's it, it's been very strange these last few weeks. Like I said, uh, usually uh, every Monday there'd be a new fire to kind of put out. Uh, last week uh, it was uh, Gardner's, which is one of the big wholesalers. Uh, this uh, uh, this Monday uh, <laughs> this week. Uh, we had uh, our distributor, uh, um, GBS, said that they couldn't process web orders anymore from our websites where we're trying to sell mm-hmm. you know, books directly. Um, so, you know, so we had to switch all our, you know, all our products on, on the website to ebooks. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it, it's been very challenging, uh, but, uh, I, you know, I'm trying to do the best I can to take care of my, of my people, first of all, my staff. Of course. And, uh, and then, and also, and then to provide a service and adapt. I mean, that's something that I've, I grew up, uh, you know, I believe in adapting. I went, uh, I'll just throw it, out, throw it out there. I went to, uh, to Stanford for my undergraduate degree. And I think that gave me a very kind of entrepreneurial uh, mode that you always have to be ready to adapt. Of course, uh, yes. Yeah, that is, that's kind of the Silicon Valley way, I guess. Um, so that's what we're doing. You know, we, we are adapting and, and trying to find ways to, as I said, partially hibernate where, where things are difficult and the revenue's down, to find ways to both survive the storm, and then you know when things do bounce back, to be there, uh, you know, ready uh, at full throttle. Now, uh, unfortunately, our time is drawing down rather rapidly. Uh, so before uh, we have to go, <laughs> sure. I'd like to uh, touch on uh, your thoughts on leadership. Um, what does the word leader mean to you? Sure. Well, I think. First of all, I think leading by example is very important. A leader leads, right? I mean, obviously, that's that, that's quite obvious. But but you know, leaders need to inspire. 
they need to also take responsibility. That's what I mentioned earlier, taking care of my my staff. I mean, that that is really important, making sure that they're, they come through this uh, uh, and both, uh, you know, financially and, and emotionally well. But also, I should mention, I mean, we talk a lot about um, on this podcast about leadership. Leadership isn't just about leading your staff. It's also about leading the larger community. So, as I said, it's also trying to provide inspiration to our customers. It's trying to, to help provide a service there. And, you know, so, so for me, you know, it's, it's really, it's a mixture of things. It's about passion. <laughs> you can probably hear that in the way that I speak. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, you know, passion is really important. And I, I think that, uh, you know, my, my teams, uh, my teams get that and feel that I'm passionate. I only try and do things that I really believe in. Uh, I try and be transparent. I really believe in, in humility. Uh, and I also believe in trying to, uh, you know, in, in this idea that, uh, in a sense, everybody's equal to some extent that, you know, you, you should never, as a leader, you, you always have to, you know, be, be a part of the team, never, never be, you know, like uh, condescending in a sense. So one of the things that, that I, I introduced uh, last year uh, in, uh, in my company was a, a social carousel, I call it, the Watkins social carousel, where every month um, every employee is randomly assigned two other employees to have uh, coffee with. Uh, and the idea there is to meet, not to talk about work, just to get to know one another and to break through silos and, and just to have, to make sure that, you know, people, everybody feels like they're equal. So I participate in this and, and I get, you know, and, and, and I love it. I love getting to know uh, my teams and, uh, you know, not just the senior management that I work with. And now actually, you know, in, in the age of Corona, we're doing this virtually. And I think it's more, more important than ever uh, that people uh, maintain, you know, social bonds. It's very, I think it's very challenging in a sense, this, this idea well, I'm rambling again, but working from home while while trying to have you know maintain that sort of water cooler, uh, I guess like uh, uh, atmosphere when you need that. Now, unfortunately, the sand has run through the glass, and we're going to have to go. Uh, <laughs> sure. But before I let you go, what does the next twelve months have in store for Watkins Media? Great question. Uh, obviously, nobody can see the future with regards to when things will uh, get back to small. Uh, when things really will ease up, but uh, we, we're going to keep uh, serving and inspiring our, our customer base. Uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, a very strong community engagement with, with all our imprints, and uh, so we're going to offer a lot of free products and, and grow our digital uh, sales, as I mentioned, uh, uh, audiobooks, ebooks, and courses. And um, and in the meantime, you know, we're 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 just going to uh, keep adapting. I mean, that that's what living is all about: improvising. Eitan, it's been a pleasure having you on the program today, and uh, we definitely have to have you back uh, because we have so much more to explore. Uh, Eitan, thank you. Thank you. That was Eitan Ilfield, director of Watkins Media. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team, and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, 
Have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, uh, he got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost i'd been i was a middlesex player i was Mm. captain of middlesex all my focus was on helping middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later i've scored a test century which is something i'd always dreamed out literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at lords in your first test i mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly i started thinking wow hold on potentially i've got a whole england career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive... Mm. um, source of advice for me so he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis my wife Ruth played a a huge Mm. role you know just in terms of because I I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world, and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 
Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you Quite. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just 
clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and d- when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? 
Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth 
before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah, so the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a. very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Wearing red. So it w- what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in 
in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I'm not sure we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i, I just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. And I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.